3 to 4 million lire. It was a huge amount. Hi, you're listening to Looted, where we uncover the hidden stories of ancient artifacts and their journeys in the illicit antiquities trade. I'm Zoe Contest, and I'm an archaeologist. Welcome to Episode 3, Big Bronzes. On this episode, we'll focus on two of these very rare bronzes found in U.S. museums, but currently the subject of great debates of identification and international ownership. There's nothing like a full-bodied ancient Greek bronze nude to get the crowds to a museum. A visitor might even fall in love, and I speak from personal experience. Riachi bronzes, here's looking at you. I mean, these two guys, over life-size, perfectly muscled, handsome, athletic, did I say muscled? They're pretty much the perfect specimens of the human form, in bronze. Standing tall in staggered stances, with left legs forward, each with his left arm bent at the elbow and outstretched, right arm at his side, minus their original attributes such as spears and shields, these are brave, strong war heroes, the celebrities of their time. Lest you think I'm alone in my passions, I just came across an academic study that was done in 2004 on the sexual appeal of these bronze statues. I'm not even kidding. And I quote, Heterosexual women were said to be attracted to the figure in the more aggressive stance. Which is odd since they have basically the same exact stance. In fact, it has been convincingly argued by the foremost expert on classical bronzes, Carol Matouche, that these two were made from the very same mold. Hence, their nearly exact figures, aside from details such as hair, which can easily be altered during the casting process. Also, apparently in this study, the ladies were only shown the bronze's rear view. It was August 16th, 1972. An auspicious day for another reason, that is, being the birthday of my sister. But I'm sure she'd have you know that it didn't become her special day until some years later. When on that summer day near the southeastern Italian town of Riace, about where the bottom of the big toe would be if you think of Italy as a high-heeled boot, that one manly arm sticking out of the sand, surprised a snorkeler swimming along the coast, who thought at first it belonged to a corpse. After some clearing of the sand, he realized what it was and alerted the police. One arm turned out to be two heavily barnacled bronze statues that caused quite a stir upon being dragged out of the sea. Pictures of this day show the locals crowded around in awe, reaching out to touch their recumbent figures on foam-topped wooden pallets, and it is said that they were given the names of two local saints, Cosmas and Damien. After years of extensive conservation, they were put on display first in Florence, then Rome, and finally in the Museum of Reggio Calabria in southern Italy, the closest national museum to where they were found, and where they have remained ever since, tantalizing the ladies, apparently. Over a million people came to see them that year, 1980, and in the same year, they were also featured on an Italian postage stamp. At the time, no other associated evidence was found in the direct vicinity. For instance, other remnants of a shipwreck. 
And so speculation ran rampant as to the origin of these fellows. Knowing that the Romans were big fans of Greek art and the original looters of it, some supposed that these were stolen from a sanctuary in mainland Greece, originally set up as images of heroes, as votive dedications in sites such as Olympia or Delphi. Others suggest that they were a product of Greek artists working in what was known as Magna Graecia in antiquity, the area of southern Italy and Sicily, colonized by the Greeks in the 8th century BC. In both cases, scholars would argue for a date of manufacture somewhere around the 5th century BC, based on the style of the figures. But there's no agreement regarding even their date. It has also been suggested that they were created much later in the Roman period. Shows how confused we can get when there's no context for an artifact. However, recently, evidence of an Ionic temple near the bronze's fine spot has been found using robotic vehicles, so perhaps with further advancements in technology, we will learn more about them. These aren't, unfortunately, unusual issues when it comes to dealing with ancient bronzes. That's because most of them are found underwater. Because metals were so valuable, and indeed still are, bronze sculptures were at the mercy of being remelted and reused, for instance, as currency. They were also prized as booty, and the Greek sculptures in particular by the Romans, the original looters of Greek art, as I mentioned. So it's very rare to find them on land. There is one famous example found in a terrestrial excavation, and that's the so-called charioteer from Delphi the site of the famous Oracle of Apollo, and a sanctuary with many valuable dedications, including this one, set up by a victor in the chariot races in the games held there. A young man dressed in a long robe and holding reins in his hand. You don't have to go all the way to Delphi to see what this guy looks like. Although, set into the side of a mountain, looking down a series of rock cliffs and finally out to the sea, it's one of the most spectacular sights you can imagine. So you should go but there's actually a copy of him made by modern Greek artists standing out front of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Just to the right if you're facing yet another site famous for its athletic endeavors, the steps that Sylvester Stallone runs up in his training as Rocky. Back to our Riachi bronzes. There's also a rumor that they were found by fishermen much farther north along the Italian coast and dragged underwater to near Riace, where they were lying in wait for the fishermen to drum up a buyer. It has even been said that the shield of one of the sculptures remains in the possession of one of these fishermen. Who knows? At any rate, these sculptures have never left Italian soil since they came out of the sea and as a pair, we have been able to deduce a lot more about them than if they had been alone. They have been carefully studied, inside and out, and, knowing their fine spot, we may eventually be able to connect them to the now-submerged temple I mentioned, and continue to piece together their history. But in that more northern area, where some claim the Riachi bronzes may have been dragged from, another bronze was found, this one with a different outcome than theirs. Here's the story. The year is 1964, 
and fishermen off the coast of Italy haul in a surprising catch. You guessed it, a barnacle-encrusted ancient bronze statue of a young, nude male. Mistaking it for a dead body at first, they soon realize what they've got. Sounds familiar, right? Gives you a sense of how realistically sculpted these figures are. But unlike the Riachi bronzes, the fishermen decide to sell it rather than report it to the authorities. The LA Times describes its next steps. Quote, The bronze spent a few days in the house of the trawler's owner, but rumors of its existence started to spread through town, Ely Rosato, a member of the crew recalled. Worried that a jealous neighbor would tell Italy's financial police, the owner's son took the 280-pound statue to a farming village three kilometers inland where it was buried in a cabbage field. The fishermen contacted local antiquities dealers, brothers by the name of Barbetti, who purchased the statue for three and a half million lira, or about $5,600, which today would equal about $44,000. Rosato recalled, Three to four million lira. It was a huge amount. People started sweating when they heard that amount. In the end, though, as is always the case with the looting business, the original finders get the short end of the money stick. By the time the cash got divided up among everyone involved in the smuggling, fishermen, cabbage farmers, and, as we'll see, associated priests, Rosato ended up with about $130. The Times article reports that, quote, he had hoped to use the money to take a short vacation, but when he returned home from his next voyage, he learned that his mother had used it to pay their debts at the grocery store. After a series of hiding places following the cabbage patch, including a short stay in a priest's bathtub, the sculpture gets sold up the chain of antiquities dealers via Brazil, London, and Germany, where it gets conserved, debarnacled, and revealed as a 3rd to 2nd century BC, curly-haired young man with a muscular build, left arm at his side and right arm raised with the fingers just about to touch the side of his head above his ear. He's missing his eyes, which would have been inlaid with stone of some kind, and his ankles and feet. What happened to his feet? Well, his pose is a familiar one to scholars of ancient Greek sculpture. It's a common gesture of victorious athletes crowning themselves with a wreath won in an athletic contest. As I mentioned earlier, statues such as these were set up in sanctuaries in Greece to honor the victor while also serving as a vote of dedication to the gods. They stood with their bronze feet set in stone bases to hold them up. It is likely that Romans ripped him off his base wherever it stood, breaking him from the stone at his ankles and put him on a ship bound for Rome, but the ship never made it. Over 2,000 years later, 13 years after being found by the fishermen, in 1977, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles pays more than $3 million for it. Dollars, not lire. $3.95 million, to be precise. And to translate that to current currency, that's over $16 million. That's a far cry from what the dealer who sold it to the Getty paid, which was 700000 and a really far cry from what young Rosato ended up with. When the youth goes on display at the Getty, it becomes an instant star in the museum's classical collection, where it remains today. Okay, so what's the problem? Well, Italy wants the bronze back, and they've been asking for it back since 1989. But here's the problem for Italy. 
The fishermen were fishing in international waters. The Getty claims that they purchased it legally. Italian law, however, prohibits the export of any antiquity from its borders. Once the statue arrived on Italian soil, it was illegal for it to be exported. However, after the Italian government tried and sentenced the Barbetti brothers for dealing in stolen goods, claiming that the sculpture belonged to the Italian state, their conviction was later invalidated. The court decided that the bronze having been found in international waters prohibited the state from claiming ownership of it. Shortly thereafter, in 1971, the German antiquities dealer who eventually sold the piece to the Getty saw it for the first time. It sent a chill down my back, he told the LA Times. I thought to myself, this is one of the most spectacular purchases that cannot be claimed by any country of origin. But now, in fact, a country of origin is claiming it. But of course, it's probably not really the country of origin, since we are pretty sure this came from Greece. Cultural patrimony laws, however, place ownership in a modern fine spot. So where does this artifact belong? If it's legal for the Getty to have the statue, is it ethical? If Italy sold it in the first place, why should they get it back? Whose claim is fishier? I've seen this guy twice in person. Once in his little private room at the Getty Villa, and once just recently, when he came to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. as part of a blockbuster exhibit of 50 Hellenistic bronzes called Power and Pathos. The exhibit was shown at the Getty, at the National Gallery, and at a museum in Florence, Italy. Guess which piece didn't go on the Florence leg of the trip? The case of the bronze has gone up the chain of courts in Italy. In 2010, a court ruled that it be seized from the Getty. The Getty did not agree to this claim, but apparently the issue is still being considered by Italy's highest appeals court. So the Getty wasn't taking any chances. Had the statue gone with the rest of Florence, it may not have come back. Even if the courts in Italy ruled that the sculpture was removed illegally from its borders, it's not illegal in the U.S. for a person or institution not associated with the federal government to import it as long as it wasn't stolen from an Italian museum or a religious institution. In the National Gallery exhibit, the statue was the first thing you saw upon entering. It was the showpiece of the exhibit, and it was displayed in front of a blown-up picture of the entrance to the stadium at Olympia, the famous sanctuary and original site of the Olympic Games. A context was invented based on what could have been a possible location for the bronze's original display, but no evidence was provided for this. There was no label in sight. I had to search to find it on an opposite wall in a faraway corner. And even then, there was no mention of Greece or Italy or the controversy surrounding this piece. Just the title, Victorious Athlete, and in parentheses, the title by which this piece is commonly known, the Getty Bronze. In the small town where the fishermen who caught him live, he is known instead as the Fano Athlete, or even the Fano Lysippus. The style of the sculpture has led some to attribute him to that famous Greek sculptor of the 4th century. Lysippus is most well known for being the personal sculptor of Alexander the Great. Imagine having a personal sculptor. No selfie sticks in those days. Attaching a named artist to an ancient work is a common practice, 
because it adds to its monetary value, and modern collectors are keen on masterworks. We discussed this with the case of Cycladic figurines in episode 2, if you want to hear more about it. Speaking of possible works by ancient masters, and lest we think this all happened in the distant past, well, distant is relative, but for those of you for whom the 1970s is a foreign concept, let's look at another bronze. If you happen to live in Ohio like I do, it's our local treasure. But is it loot? Like the victorious athlete, he is a young male nude, but more slender and with an exaggerated pose with his right leg bearing his weight, hip jutted out, with the left leg bent at the knee and resting the left foot just behind the right. His right shoulder slopes down towards his right hip, with the arm broken off just above the elbow. The left shoulder is raised higher than the right, and though missing the arm entirely, his pose suggests that he would have had his arm upraised and would have been leaning against something. He gazes downward, as though looking at something just to his left, with eyes of white stone. His longish, wavy hair is tucked into a headband. This figure appeared on the art market, practically out of nowhere in 2003. His pose is very similar to a statue of a young Apollo leaning on a tree, about to kill a lizard crawling up it, described by the ancient writer Pliny as the bronze work of the famous 4th century BC sculptor Praxiteles. Versions of this very well-known statue exist in marble copies made in the Roman period. Again, the Romans were keen on Greek art, and so, in addition to stealing it, they copied it. And this gave rise to the idea that the bronze was actually the original sculpture made by Praxiteles himself. This is highly unlikely, to put it mildly. First of all, what is the context for this object? Well, a German lawyer, Ernst Ulrich Walter, who reclaimed his family estate in 1991 in East Berlin after the fall of the Berlin Wall, says he found his family's treasure in pieces there in 1994. A Romanian scholar reports seeing it that year in a fragmentary condition, and then it disappeared from the world for almost 10 years, during which time Walter, who claimed he thought it was just an 18th century lawn ornament, sold it to a Dutch antiques dealer. This is suspicious, considering he was known for his travels and collecting in the Mediterranean, and the Romanian scholar would likely have recognized that the piece had once been in the ground, based on its internal corrosion. During this period, it also underwent some level of conservation, but by whom and when is unclear. It was offered up for sale in 2003 by the gallery Phoenix Ancient Art. If this rings a bell, it's the same gallery that sold the $16 million Cycladic figurine that you heard about on episode two. It's also the same gallery that is run by brothers who have both been convicted of crimes connected to looted antiquities one in Egypt and the other in New York City for falsifying documents. As an aside, they are also the dealers that were selling material to Fred Schultz, the first U.S. antiquities dealer to go to jail for his nefarious activities. He was smuggling artifacts out of Egypt by making them look like tourist junk. Of course, he may not be the last. Just this winter, another New York dealer was arrested on charges of selling looted artifacts after falsifying ownership documents and repairing objects to hide damages incurred during illegal excavation. But I digress. 
This looting business is a slippery slope. The connections go on and on. All right, back to Ohio. The Cleveland Museum of Art bought the sculpture from the Abutan brothers in 2004 for a reported $5 million. And, like the Getty youth before it, it became an instant sensation in the classical gallery. The museum maintains not only that its purchase was above board, but that the statue is an original of the 4th century BC, and perhaps the work of Praxiteles himself, as described by Pliny. Wouldn't that be amazing? The only existing sculpture by a known Greek artist, nearly intact after over 2,000 years, and it's in Cleveland? Wow. But besides style and iconography, which could fit, how else can we determine the chronology and nature of this piece? What about a scientific examination of it? In fact, the metal analyses were done post-restoration and are thus inconclusive. One of my favorite quotes on the authenticity of this piece comes from British archaeologist Paul Barford's blog on portable antiquity collecting and heritage issues. That is Cleveland's problem in a nutshell. They've bought a contextless jigor and can infer and speculate on style and iconography all they want. But that is not the hard information true scholarship needs. A jigor, but a really expensive one. Most ancient art historians I've spoken to agree that the piece is indeed likely to be ancient, but more likely a Hellenistic or later copy of an earlier work, and not crafted by Praxiteles himself. And as an archaeologist, the lack of context, together with the spotty modern history, suggests to me that this piece was looted, and probably in the 90s, when it first showed up in Germany. In 2007, in fact, the Greek government claimed the statue came out of the water between Greece and Italy. Time will tell if any more information will come to light about this piece, but together with the Getty Youth, it shows that the desire to own the best of the best can still blind a museum to the realities of a piece's origin. Should the museum have bought this sculpture? What do you think? If it was legal for the Getty to buy the youth, and legal for the Cleveland Museum of Art to buy the Apollo, does that mean it was ethical? That's it for today, but there are many more artifacts with stories to be told. Looted is back in two weeks with the next episode. Check out www.lootedpodcast.org for images related to this broadcast, as well as links to further online learning about the bronzes and selected sources I used in my research. There are many excellent scholars studying these issues. This podcast is made possible with the support of the Whiting Foundation and Kenyon College. Special thanks to the University of Pennsylvania Museum. Original music by Noah Weinman. Check out his band, Park Strangers, on Bandcamp. Simona Dubrovich, Paul Gephardt, and Chris Hall provided voices to quotes. Gee.
Jigo. 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 Jigo.